This is the Planetary Potential Podcast. For those who are eager to explore entrepreneurship, innovation, and cross-cultural communication in exciting and interesting places around the world. And now, here's your host, Andrew P. Rowan. Welcome to episode 16 of season one. How do you come up with an idea for a startup? This week, I sit down with Paula Mego, co-founder and CEO of Kimmy. In our interview, we discuss how Paula had the idea for Kimmy, what it's been like working on her second startup, and co-founding a company with her brother and a friend. An important reminder that opinions shared in this episode are those of individual guests. For more information, please visit www.andrewprowen.com disclosures. Paula and I also cover how her experience living in Mexico City and New York City impacted her global outlook, the meaning of the name Kimmy, and decision-making with her co-founder and brother. Let's get started. With me is Paolo Mego. She is co-founder and CEO of Kimi, a startup based here in Lima, Peru. And we are back at the Swiss contact office. Paolo, welcome. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. We just walked through your pitch deck for Kimi, which I should point out is spelled Q-I-M-I in case folks are trying to look it up. And you shared the origin story of how you started this. Can you talk a bit about that? Specifically, you know, what prompted you to focus in the industry and how you saw the opportunity there? Yes, well, I was working for a fast food chain and this fast food chain was losing sales. And one of the reasons behind it was that their equipment was failing, but they didn't have the visibility to know like which specific equipment was failing and the reason behind that. So I was assigned to that project and to understand what was going on. So we analyzed the process and we found out that it was pretty inefficient, that it was very unorganized. All the information was on paper that someone would try to then put into a spreadsheet and then at some point into their ERP systems. And these, having all this information spread out and not consolidated on one single platform. Didn't give them the visibility and the organization for them to, to know what actions to, to take mm. to improve this, this process. So what type of consequences would you have with this type of mode of working, like being unorganized, is that you would have technicians with overcapacity, mm-hmm. and besides equipment failing, you would see that expenses were overpriced. So we, like I talked to my boss and and I told her that I had a brother, I have a brother who was able to to do a quick MVP for them, a software that could help them have this visibility that they needed. Mm -hmm. So she told me, okay, go for it and do it. And that's how we started. Like at that point, we didn't know that it was going to become um, a startup. Like it was just us trying to help the company to take like... Uh, to have a, a quick solution, yeah. Uh, and but we build it in in a month, an MVP, and then they started using it. So you saw that there was a, a challenge there and approached it from a, a project perspective. What was the pitch that you made your brother to get him involved in helping to build out an MVP? Mm-hmm. Well, at that time, my brother had a, a company in the U.S. He had founded a company which objective was to build software solutions to improve processes. So like he, he had this company and he, he was interested in, in 
uh, getting clients in, in Latin America or in Peru because well, he's Peruvian also, but he was living in the U.S. Mm. So he didn't have access to clients in, in Peru. So like that's how we, uh, like I told my boss, no, I have this brother who has this company, maybe he can help out. And she uh, she said, okay, let's let's do it. So that's how like uh, I knew that my brother would be interested and that he could do something uh, like very fast yeah. because what the company needed at that time was uh, a quick solution. The company you were working at. Yes, I was working for this company and they needed a quick solution. Uh, what about your brother's company? For how long had the company been operating and what kind of services was it providing? Uh, yes, they well they had founded it like some years ago and as I was telling you like they would do software development. I see. Mm-hmm. So this Kimi is a completely different company, right? Yes. Okay, just to, to clarify on that. And Kimi is essentially a cloud-based maintenance asset management software. Yes. Right? So it helps mid-sized companies track their assets, their inventory, of course, and to schedule maintenance so that they get the full lifespan of their investment in equipment, machines, and of course, with regular servicing, uh, it prevents some of these emergency uh, calls that you mentioned before to uh, keep the cost down for yes. the lifespan of, of that equipment. Exactly. That is kind of a an interesting pitch to make to companies in the sense that if they are in need of such a software, it's because they're overlooking their inventory in the first place, right? And you mentioned before, traditionally, they might be using Excel to keep track of the maintenance uh, when it's scheduled and such. So it seems that there's not a high priority that they place on that. But you're trying to change that, right, Mm -hmm. by introducing Kimmy. Can you talk a bit about how you talk to those companies specifically? Yes. Well, there are some big and mid-sized companies that are in this point that they are growing mm-hmm. and maybe at some point they could, uh, they were fine with uh, working with an Excel sheet but working with Excels don't uh, allow you to have like a, a real control over what is happening with your assets because like spreadsheets get lost, lots of people can uh, input data on that spreadsheet and you don't have any traceability of who has uh, right. done who has updated it who right? has updated it, yes uh, so Part of this, like, there are lots of family-owned businesses or companies that are going through this process of professionalization. Yeah, so they're implementing more formalized processes for their business operations. Yes, so those are the type of companies that we are looking for. Those Mm -hmm. companies that are working on an Excel, but they do want to get into their first maintenance software so that they can get more organized, plan better their maintenance processes. Because everyone wants to get savings or reduce their costs, but but without being organized or plan better their maintenance programs, they will not be able to do that. So there's a need to organize yourself better. Yeah, so going back to that MVP after one month, what was the reaction from the fast food company after you had demonstrated the product? Uh, well, uh, they had now more visibility of what it was going on, but it was a process where they, the company started uh, requesting more uh, functionalities. Mm-hmm. So even though the, the first MVP was one month long, then 
we started adding more and more products uh, or features to the product. But at that point, it wasn't still a startup. It was just a product that we were developing and trying to help them. Yes. At what point did you realize that you were adding enough value to this company whereby you could justify charging them for it? You could, you could actually have a cost associated with this product for this company? Well, they, it didn't took that much time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because, yes, they, they started paying for, for, for the product, but like on a monthly basis, yes. Mm-hmm. So like for the company, it wasn't that much, much money, but it covered the development of, of, the, of the product. Yeah. So like, it, yes, it, it was after two months or a month that they started paying. Okay, so then they, they started paying. But at, until that point, I wasn't part of the, of the project, right? So. Okay, so you basically were like a liaison. You yes. just introduced them and said, okay, like fast food company, here, talk to my brother, and then the two of you can figure out what's going mm-hmm. on. Okay, so then I'm sure your brother or the company gave you updates on what was happening, right? Yes. We're at this point, and you know things are going well. We expect to deploy a new version next week or whatever mm-hmm. the case is. So how did it happen then that you joined or you, you created a company with your brother and um, the CTO, yes. both of whom were in Los Angeles at the time, right? Yes, and they, still are. They were, yes, they were in, in Los Angeles and they had developed like lots of features mm-hmm. already for, for the company. And then like I had always wanted to, to build my own company and they were investigating the market also. They saw that there were softwares that would do the same in the US, like there were lots of CMMS uh, softwares in the, in the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, CMMS stands CMMS for? CMMS is the Computerized Maintenance Management Software. Which is a type of SaaS, type of software SaaS, as a service. Yes, yeah, software as a service that helps companies uh, in their maintenance process. So like as, as they had a look for that or research that market in the US and they saw that like maybe 20 or 30 years ago the there was the same wave like people were using or companies were using Excel and then they migrated to to this type of software and we saw that in Latin America or in Peru like you'd have all the companies working in Excel then they they were the ones that got the idea okay maybe we can scale this not yeah. just for one company but for more companies, so they started building the product similar to other maintenance softwares that already exist in the market, but they are not available for the Peruvian or the Latin American market. So I see. So in, in one way, I guess you could look at it as, in this instant, the market is 30 years behind yes. the U.S.? Yes, we, I, I would say that, yes, that it's something that it has already happened in the U.S., yeah. but it hasn't yet happened here, so it's not that we are inventing something that that it's completely new, mm-hmm. but it's something that it can be replicated in our country. Yeah. Um, and for some reason, people in the U.S. are not looking to us <laughs> to offer it. Huh, interesting. So you and your brother became co-founders along with yes, the CTO. I quit, yes, I quit my job, mm-hmm. and I told my, my bosses that I wanted to 
to work on, on this project. What was the reaction from your bosses at the time? They didn't want me to quit. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, did they try and convince you to stay? Yes, but uh, like it was uh, a goal, a personal goal that I wanted to pursue and to try. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, a dream I had had like for lots of years. Uh, so it was a different type of experience. I was not quitting to work on a different company. Uh, right. I was quitting to do a personal project. So that's when Kimi was officially born. Uh, yeah. So we started to to work on analyzing the, the local market and then talking to to other companies to see if the the need was shared on, on those mm-hmm. on those companies and then we validated that it was a pain for lots of companies in different industries and that's when we started. What was the reaction from your other family members that you and your brother were going to start a company together? Well, at the beginning, maybe I think they they were scared because we we were both quitting our jobs. Like, we didn't have bad paid jobs. Like, I have an MBA, so I had a good salary. My brother is based in LA, so he also has like high costs to yeah. afford so like it was risky but they were understanding that it was something that like we have different backgrounds we complement each other yeah. uh, I wouldn't have chosen my brother if I, I I haven't chosen my brother just because he's my brother I've chosen him because he has this uh, technical knowledge that I don't have right. he's so, an, an, an aerospace engineer mm-hmm. he has a master's in mechanical engineer from uh, the University of Southern California He's very smart, and I've known him for lots of years, so I know that <laughs> yeah. he he's the type of person that uh, is going to add lots of value to the company. And uh, while I was doing my MBA, we had like a first try of building a startup also. You and your brother? My brother, me, and the CTO that I Interesting. Have. Can you tell me a bit about that? Because it almost sounds like that was a, a test run yes. for Kimi. Yes, like while I was on my MBA, mm-hmm. a friend and I from the MBA were, uh, we, were, we were both had the same need of like having uh, beauticians come to our house because we had like very busy uh, schedules sure. and we wanted to, to have people come at our house, but we didn't uh, know who to call at that point. So right. we saw also what startups existed in in the U.S., we saw some like Uber for beauticians or Uber for yeah. um, th- those type of, of startups, and we wanted to to try. This this friend was from Colombia, I was from Peru, so we said, okay, you're gonna do it in Colombia, I'm gonna do it in Peru, and we're gonna build our our startup. And we tried that business model, but we yeah. then uh, realized that it, it needed like too much cash. Like an Uber to to build a, a right. marketplace is to. I mean the capital requirements the capital were required, high. Yes, okay. are, are high. So it didn't work out. Uh-huh. Um, well, this friend went. She didn't. Uh, she was also at Duke then. She was at Duke then. Okay. Um, but in the end, she decided to move to New York. So like the 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 team didn't work well uh, mm-hmm. in this first startup, and we didn't like work w- uh, with that like for more than. Eight months, but we realized that Roberto, Luis Alberto, my brother, and I, like, we did do a, a very good team, mm-hmm. the three of us. So when Kimi was born, like, we knew that the three of us could work together. 
Okay. Like Roberto is a friend of my brother uh-huh. uh, from school. They've known each other for 25 years. Wow. In that sense, there was a course then at Duke while you were doing your MBA that required you to come up yes. with a business idea and yes. to start implementing it. And that's how you came up with like Uber for, for nails or beauticians. Yes. Yeah. We also participated on the Duke Startup Challenge. Like I we see. were finalists at the Duke Startup Challenge. We like we got some cash to test the idea, and yeah. we had like 25 technicians here in Lima. But in the end, it didn't work. Right. Interesting. But that helped to solidify the confidence in, in the, the team. team. Yes. The, the founding team between your brother Roberto, Roberto and you, of course. Okay, interesting. So what, what is it like having a close family member as a co-founder? It isn't easy <laughs> because sometimes like you don't know who is the boss. Like in the end, all of, organiz- all of the organizations have to have yeah. one person that... Uh, is your older brother or younger brother? He's my younger brother. Younger brother, okay. Yes. So like as we are both co-founders, we are both share- shareholders. We have the same equity uh-huh. on the company when there are disagreements or when uh, maybe I can I want to go to to take one type of decision and he wants to take a different type of decision then it can be sometimes difficult or at the beginning to yeah. to how do you work through that because as you mentioned his profile and your profile are very complementary right mm-hmm. so when it comes to like product development when it comes to the technical aspects, it sounds like that's where his strengths lie, whereas for you, it's more operational, more mm-hmm. on the business side. Do I understand that correctly? Yes. So then, do you divide those domains along those lines, or is it other kinds of decision-making where you have differing opinions and you need to figure out what's the mm-hmm. best way forward for you as a company, but also maintaining your relationship intact as, mm-hmm. as family. Yes. Well, he's in charge of the product development mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm in charge of sales, but there are some strategic decisions like which market to attack first, like which industry uh, that we like to take, like the three of us. Yeah. And those are the type of decisions where we could disagree at the beginning, but in the end, like what we have taken as our rule is that it has to be data-driven, data-driven decision. I see. Right? So we like, I can think of something, he can think of, of something different, but we are trying to make like numbers talk and see like we can experiment lots of things, but in the end, like we're gonna follow the path that the numbers show us to follow. Like we're so, very. So that's something you no, both agree on. Yes. Okay. So then so it sounds like decide. any disagreements are decided pretty quickly. Like with whoever numbers. produces, yes. but at the beginning yeah. we didn't have that policy. Like mm. that at the beginning, like we didn't know how to decide. Yeah. And at some point we said, okay, we're both data driven. Like we both feel comfortable deciding with numbers. So yeah. like that's that's how we are going to decide. Interesting that you didn't go the title route, right? Mm-hmm. Basically saying, you know. You're the CEO, you are setting the strategic vision and the direction, and he should focus on the product. But that didn't happen. Yes, we, I tried, but then <laughs> no, we couldn't. Yes, because wow. I'm, the, I'm the CEO, I'm the boss, but then mm-hmm. it's not, I don't think it's a good way to decide because yeah. like, uh, I'm not the owner of the truth, so I can be wrong sometimes. 
Sure. Um, yeah, it's a great way to put it. I'm not the owner of the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the other way you could have gone about that is bringing in the third co-founder to kind of break the tie, right? Yes. But also yes. you didn't choose that option. No. I don't know why. Maybe because he's more more, more focused on the IT uh, part of the business. Yeah. And he's also right now working part-time. I see. So like the, the two of us that were working full-time was my brother and I. So, mm-hmm. uh, and he's based in LA. Like uh, Luis, also, Al- yeah. Luis Alberto comes to Peru like very often. So there were more uh, opportunities to disagree. <laughs> I see. So when your brother comes from L.A. to Lima, for how long does he spend here? And then what are you focused on when he's here in town? He comes for like three weeks, and mm-hmm. then he goes back to L.A. for two weeks, and then he comes for three weeks. Interesting. Uh, and what we're trying to do is that when he's in Lima, he has more time with clients so that he can get more feedback on the product. I see. Because like, he needs to... It's different. We can have like conference calls, but yeah. it's different to have an opinion of a client that is next to you that, yeah. than from a computer a screen. Sure. And so is that feedback on site or like on site where the machines, where the equipment is located? Or is that feedback uh, at your client's office or at another location? It's where the users are. So for instance... Frontline employees then? Uh, yes, at the technicians... Also, like for instance, uh, last time that he came, he met one of our clients, technicians that they own a, a, a hotel chain. Mm-hmm. So he he met with them and he yeah. he saw how they use the product and he got the feedback and then he went back to LA to start like. Does does your brother also deliver the onboarding training for new clients? Sometimes. Like Sometimes. Okay, so it's, you, you split it then. We you are do some of it and he does some of it. we are still a small team. Mm-hmm. So like uh, our goal is for him to do that, the onboarding. Yeah. Uh, and for me to just focus on sales and then for my third uh, co-founder to, to work on IT. Okay. Uh, but we are still like growing the team so that he can release all of the other tasks that he currently has and that doesn't allow him to focus only on, uh, Got on onboarding on product development. Okay, so tell me more about your Duke MBA experience because I understand it is not the traditional two-year mm-hmm. MBA, right? So can you tell me what's unique about it and perhaps how it's changed mm-hmm. from when you... Did your MBA to today? Yes, well, I did a, an executive MBA and I chose Duke because it had like a, a large class. I had 100 classmates. Yeah. And for an executive MBA, it wasn't that common to have such a big and diverse class because there, there were people from the US, people from India, from Europe, from Latin America. And the program name was uh, cross, the Cross Continent MBA. Now it's named the Global Executive MBA. And mm-hmm. we had to travel to different locations, India, Beijing, uh, Duke also, for around two weeks. And then we would come back to work. And it was uh, wow. built for professionals that were like growing their, in their companies and they couldn't stop working. So like uh, the program is has the exact the exact same uh, classes as as the 
daytime MBA. Sure. But uh, it's more stretched out. Stretched out. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the highlight of that experience for you? Because on one hand, you are in a series of different environments, but with the same people, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, you have your memories from, as you mentioned, in India, of course, at Duke, in China. But at the, at, on the other hand, like it takes a huge effort to travel mm-hmm. elsewhere for two weeks. You're battling jet lag for the mm-hmm. first few days. Then when you come back, you're battling jet lag again for the first few days. Mm-hmm. Yes, but for me, it was like one of the most amazing experiences that I have had because like, as I told you before, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I think mm-hmm. global and this particular MBA help us to learn about different cultures around the world and how to make businesses in different co- in different countries and in different type of cultures like mm-hmm. so like in Beijing it's totally different than from India and than from Latin America so like what I uh, get out of this MBA is the opportunity to learn about how to do business on the on the field like the real not 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 only on textbooks like yeah. you so, share with with business people from there and we visited companies yeah. From those countries. So it sounds like it, it, it gave you the confidence then to yes. perhaps start Kimi? Is that fair to say? Uh, yes. Well, I had studied economics on my undergrad. Mm-hmm. So like uh, having an MBA definitely gave me like more tools to how uh, see the di- difference or manage the different types of, of the business sales yeah. or logistics or those type of things. Mm-hmm. And it also gives you like a better name to present yourself when you are in front of a CEO of a company. I like see. It's a, it's a good thing to say that you have an MBA from a good university from the U.S. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a signal. Yes. I understand that that's not your only international experience, right? Mm-hmm. You lived in Mexico for six months working mm-hmm. as part of a team at UBS, correct? Yes. Can you talk a bit about what your function was mm-hmm. in that group and then also on the team? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I, after graduating from my undergrad, I joined UBS. UBS is a Swiss wealth manager and investment bank. And I began working in Lima, but then the subprime crisis began in 2007. Yep. And they closed the team in Lima and they offered me a position in New York in the corporate advisory group team, which was in charge of uh, doing like M&A for the private bank clients Mm -hmm. for family-owned businesses. So as part of this transition of going from Lima to New York, I had to like spend some time in Mexico while my visa was being processed. Okay. So like I would report to the team in New York, but from the Mexican office. Interesting. Um, Were you the only one at the Mexican office who was assigned to the New York office? There was another person in Mexico that was assigned to the to the New York office, mm-hmm. and it was her and, and, and me. Okay, so I imagine then the two of you became pretty close during this time in Mexico because everyone else in Mexico had their own portfolios that were yes, it local, was a small team, right? and yes. you were mm-hmm. focusing on your portfolio based in New York, right? Yes, well, the team was based in New York, but we would serve clients around Latin America. 
Like okay. We had clients in Peru, in Chile, in Mexico, in Paraguay. So I had the opportunity with this group to travel to different countries in Latin America uh, that had the, the common thing about this client was that they had family-owned businesses and they mm -hmm. wanted to sell those businesses. And we I were see. advising these companies on how to sell how to their businesses. That, yeah. mm -hmm. But it, it helped me like learn and meet like owners of companies in, in all of these countries. Yeah. Mm. So all over Latin America at the time. This is in 2008, right? 2009. Or 2007? 2007 to 9. Yeah, to okay. Nine. Yes, nine. So you were, in effect, moving farther away, but still focused on Latin, Latin America. America. And Mexico yes. was kind of like a, a transit, like a pit stop almost, right? Yes, because in the end it was like the biggest market. Like Mexico and Brazil are the two biggest markets in, Lat in Latin America. Mm -hmm. But I, as I was... As I speak Spanish, then they would give me like uh, deals in this yeah. Spanish part of the of Latin America. Were there any words in Spanish that didn't translate across countries? So when you're using financial terms, the language is very specialized sometimes. Mm -hmm. Were there any instances where you were talking about a, a, a a financial product or a financial service, but your counterpart in another country didn't understand what you were saying, or you had to rephrase it somehow. I actually don't don't remember that specifically for business terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There were some terms in like the daily terms, daily life, daily yeah. life terms that uh, they were pretty different from Mexico and and Peru, even though we share the same language. Do you remember those words? Uh, yes. For instance, malograr in Peru is when something gets broken, uh -huh. we say se malogró. Uh, but in Mexico, that word doesn't exist. It, they say se arruinó or things like that. Like they yeah. don't use the same terms. Se dañó. Yeah. Mm -hmm. is, or, there were words that had different meanings. Like el taco in Mexico is something that you eat. Taco here is the hill. Uh, so like there were words that... That's the, the, tacones, no? Here we say, you say los taco tacos as well? Los tacos. Mm -hmm. Oh, tacos. So, there's, so, so those, heels or, or food, mm -hmm. basically. Yes, those type of things that are from a daily conversation. So it's kind of like things between American English and British English, right? Same language, mm -hmm. but different words for mm -hmm. certain things like a torch and flashlight, mm -hmm. right? like chips and crisps, mm -hmm. or actually, yeah, chips and crisps and fries. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, then you moved to New York, correct? Yes. Then I got my H-1B visa and I moved to New York. <laughs> and, and what was that like, living in New York? It was very different than Mexico. Like in Mexico, I felt very comfortable at the beginning. It was like living in a bigger Lima. Hmm. Um, the cultures were very similar, like very like family culture, like family Family-oriented, yeah. Yes, family-oriented, yes. Yeah. In New York, it was pretty different. It yeah. was, like, more, like, individual, yes. Yeah. Um, or self, I think of myself, and I have, like, lots of things to do, and I'm in a hurry, and, like... So less community-focused, right? Less community-focused, right? yes. So more, more about the individual and uh, the uh, self-needs, right? Yes. And but the interesting thing is the mm -hmm. diversity, right? Like in my team in New York, I had a, I make friends with a, uh, 
guy that was from India, a guy that was that was from Brazil. They were there were Mexicans. Yeah. So like it was a very diverse team, but it was different. Like my roommate was from Greece, and we didn't share the same like values or I mean, not the values. Culture, but col- traditions, traditions, rituals. Yes, traditions. Yeah. But that also, I mean, it sounds like it was a growing experience yes. as well, right? Yes. Even though you were more in, in a comfort zone in Mexico City, the experiences exactly. in New York, as you mentioned, were more diverse and exposed you to more culture. Do you think that, I, I'm assuming that you did your MBA after that time, right? Yes, I came back to, to Peru. Yeah. I worked for a private equity here. Uh, I then worked for some of the portfolio companies of this private equity, and after yeah. that, well, I, while I was working for a, for one of these portfolio companies, I did this executive MBA. Do you think that your time in New York and that exposure to different walks of life and different cultures in New York helped to drive you towards seeking an MBA program that had a global focus? Yes, like I, I don't know. Well, I don't know if it's actually working in New York, but I always had that that love for of, for learning about different cultures and different mm. uh, countries, and I like to learn different languages also. So, are you learning a language now? Uh, not currently. When I was a, a child, I learned well English, French, and I learned some Portuguese also. Mm-hmm. So, like I I have, I've always liked to learn about like how to how other people think how other people yes, no. express themselves so but I did learn in New York that uh, there were all of these opportunities and this very good education that yeah. you wouldn't find here in, in, in Peru like hmm. and it, it gives you another mindset or uh, yeah. yes like you see lots of businesses or lots of opportunities that are or, or some business ideas that are already working there and you see that you don't have them in your country and you say like this can work here and so my mind would always like be dreaming of all the things that we could do similar to the US here and, and vice versa too right like things that are yes. missing in the US that you have here yes. in Peru or perhaps that you saw in Mexico as well yes. can you share what is the most important thing that you learned about your time in Mexico or your time in New York or put another way, like, what do you think was the most valuable impact for that change in mindset while you were in either place? Like, is there anything that surprised you about living in Mexico where you thought one thing and then you spent some time there and you realized that it was actually something else? Or similarly for New York, after you spent some time in New York, is there anything that, that surprised you about living in the U.S.? About the U.S. is like how fast things can happen, or I don't speed. Know, speed, yes. Um, that because well, things take, you know, take some time as well in Mexico, as it's still part of Latin America. But you're saying in New York, it operates at a, at a different level in terms of, of speed. Yes, yes. I was, yes. I don't know if, if it, that resonates with you, but like things would move much much quicker in the U.S. at some point. I uh, see. So then once you came back here to Peru, did you find yourself frustrated because you had become adjusted to the speed, the norm in U.S., and then you come back here and it's a different speed? When I looked for where to work here in Peru, I, that was one of the things that I looked for in the job that I was applying to. Like I get to, to work for a, for a group 
for an economic group that was very hands-on, mm -hmm. that was very like horizontal. I don't know if that's flat. flat yes. Yeah. Uh, not much that, hierarchy. No, not much hierarchy, and that you could, uh, your voice can be listened. You could and you actively can, contribute. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So like, that's why I think it didn't uh, affected me that much, but it was something that I looked for like when I moved back. What about friends? in New York or in Mexico. Are you still in touch with any of your friends from that time? Yes, I've recently talked to a friend uh, that used to work with me and he's in Brazil and he's also an entrepreneur in Brazil. Wow. Like, it was funny that we both met one potential investor that we have in common. Mm -hmm. And so, like, we have kept, kept in touch. Yeah. Uh, yes. That's nice. Going back to the investor theme, your focus was primarily on helping high net worth individuals exit from their companies, mm -hmm. right? Their family companies. And can you talk a bit about how that exposure to that network specifically helped you or is helping you today as you formulate your plans for the future with Kimi? Yes, well, I think that it, it helped us if when we think that we are ready to to grow to another country, mm -hmm. like one advantage that I see that I can have now is that I will be able to get in touch with these people that I met at some point, yeah. and they are like the first doors that could probably uh, get open in a different country. It's not that I'm getting to a country that I don't know at all or I don't know anyone. And yeah. I have some network that could help me like have a better landing on a on a different country. So like. That's one thing. And the other one is that having been able to work with these owners in different countries, you can like learn how to talk to to these family-owned businesses in different, in different countries also. Yeah, that makes sense, especially because you have spent time with them, not trying to pitch them, but trying to help them work through what they prioritize, what their concerns are. And now you're approaching it from the other side, right? As, uh, as they are now uh, potential customers or their networks are potential customers for, for Kimi. Can, can you share where does the name Kimi come from? Like, how did you come up with that name? Yes. Well, Kimi in Quechua, it means, Quechua is like uh, the... Dialect. The dialect here. In, for in the some Indian. indigenous people. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. And Kimi it means support. Support. Uh, yes. So we wanted to be like uh, the support for maintenance teams. Mm. And then in, in English, it also like we found out that uh, this could be like quality information for maintenance uh, intelligence that we, oh, we I would, see as an acronym. Uh, yes, we would uh, yeah. collect quality information to make intelligent maintenance decisions. So it worked for cool. both in English and in Quechua. <laughs> Do, do people have trouble pronouncing it if they've never heard it before? No, not pronouncing it, writing it, they do, because here, when you use the Q, you use Q-U-I, and you, yeah. that, that's pronounced Ki. Ki, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, most people write it with, with a U, but in Quechua, the, the way that it's written is without a U. Interesting. I, I would expect them to write it with a K. But you're saying mm -hmm. that they write, they add a U to the Kimi. Oh, so I guess they've seen the Q, they've seen the word, and then they just kind of put the the U in there. Mm -hmm. But then it changes the name, mm -hmm. right? Yes. It, the the pronunciation is different. Ah uh, no, it's the it's same. It's the same. Yes, Kimi okay. with U and without a U is the same way. 
It's pronounced the same way. But it, it's not a word in Quechua, only no, without the U. Without the U. Okay, interesting. And so then, uh, who helped to develop the branding? Because you have this white text on an orange background. Is that consistent throughout your entire corporate identity? Uh, yes, well, the, the orange is. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen like lots of maintenance workers, they were traditionally orange. That's why we hmm. picked orange. Okay. Because it's uh, related to like a... Yes, to this work on the field. So they, even if they're not aware of it, they'll subconsciously associate orange with maintenance. Yes. Okay, cool. Can you talk a bit about where you are today in terms of users or partners? And then what are your projections for the end of the year? And then what are your future plans after, after 2019, for example? Are you looking to expand maybe next door to Colombia or Chile or, or Mexico, as you mentioned? Yes. Well, we currently have around like 450 users, mm-hmm. but we're implementing the software on some big uh, companies that are going to help us reach the 700 users wow. by the end of, of those implementations. So those are customers that have already signed like contracts with us. That's great. Are these uh, Peruvian companies, or are they foreign or multinational? Yes, they are uh, Peruvian companies. Mm-hmm. Some of them have like their sister companies in Chile. There's one uh, restaurant company that has a, a Chilean uh, company that we also we do want to serve them. But yeah. So like by the end of the year, we want to. We want to triple the size of, of the users, but it's it's a process, right? So mm-hmm. we're, we're working through those numbers. Um, we are not planning to to go to another market yet. Mm-hmm. We want to first attack the local market that we think it's has like lots of opportunities, and then after after that, everyone has told us that you should go to Mexico. It's a bigger market, sure. but it's not something that we have decided yet. When you say that you are interested in the local market, does that mean Lima? Does it mean other cities in Peru mm-hmm. or something in between? Yes, well, there are, like the biggest cities in Peru are Lima, Arequipa, Trujillo. Like uh, most of the Pura companies, as well. Pura probably, yes. But most of the companies are based in Lima. There are some yeah. uh, factories in Arequipa. Uh, but I think the biggest, biggest market is, would be here in Lima. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a very big difference between Lima, with around 10 million people here, mm-hmm. and uh, places like Piura, mm-hmm. which has just under 500,000. Yes, right? but we have received some calls from people in Moquegua, for instance, that you wouldn't say that they would need that. <laughs> how, how, how do they hear about it? Uh, we did some uh, AdWord campaigns. I see, okay. And they, this was a, a company that... Uh, would provide maintenance services to city to city halls. City halls, yes. yeah. So, so public sector, uh, like to the public sector, local government. Yes. So and they were interested in a software. Okay. Uh, but so it's something that we didn't expect it to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But would this software be useful for, let's say, like mass production farms? Uh, if they have equipment, yeah. big equipment that they want to. Uh, to monitor, yes, it okay. can be. We have talked 
with companies in the agriculture sector, mm -hmm. in different sectors, and it. they it it works across sectors. Okay, so it's it's sector agnostic in that sense, right? Yes, uh, all the functionalities are not the same. Mm -hmm. You might require like more development in in the like in the manufacturing sector. It's more hard and you need like more software development to yeah. attack the, those industries, but but it does like maintenance in the end is is the same I process. See. Okay, interesting. So then, pretty much, it sounds like your focus is going to be Peru for the foreseeable future yes. until the right time to enter another mm -hmm. market like Mexico. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you have the network that's already built into not only mm -hmm. Mexico but other countries in Latin America to uh, to expand, at least in terms of your customer base, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Can you share a bit about growth? Like, how are you funding growth? Are you going to be fundraising? Are you focused purely on self-funding or sales funding? Yes, like right now we have been financing the startup by ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's our own money. Uh, but we do want to like uh, raise some like seed money yeah. when, when we think we have achieved like the right uh, metric of sales and growth. Okay. Um, so like we are working on that before knocking doors and trying to to look for investors. Like the good thing that I have, that I think that we have is that we have also the network yeah. in private equity or in venture capital. Like as I've been working for finance for lots of right. years, um, but we are waiting for the right time. Like we don't yeah. want to be in a hurry of like selling the company for too low just for money. Yeah, and the network not just here in Peru, but across Latin America, it sounds. Okay, so as uh, our time draws to a close, I always uh, like to give an opportunity to the interviewee to share something, uh, it can be about any subject, that I haven't asked you about, right? So, for example, if you want to share something about yourself, about Kimi, about Lima, about Peru, Latin America or even your experiences globally, uh, this is a time to do that. Mm -hmm. Or if you want to share, for example, what's the best advice that you've ever received, that's also an option because it's an open-ended question. Mm -hmm. oh, well, yes. Uh, in my case, I think that what I, what I would like to say is that if you have a passion or if you have a dream, it's hard at the beginning to take that leap of faith of mm. jumping and trying to work on that. But I would advise anyone that has this dream of becoming an entrepreneur to just try it and give it a try. Because if not, like, you can like, regret a lot. Like, we are having like, an amazing learning experience with Kimi. Yeah. Um, we have learned a lot in, in very few months. So I think that uh, we would have regret a lot if we hadn't even tried. Right? So, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of people that I know here that they ask me like, like I want to do this and I want to do that, but I don't have like the strength or the to, to take that leap of faith. But yeah. um, I would say just just do it and go for whatever your dreams are. Yeah, it's uh, I mean there's a framework called uh, regret minimization. Yes, I heard that. In in how you uh, make decisions, uh, basically you know. If, are you going to regret it more now trying or in the future having not tried? 
and of course with only you know one life that you have uh, it makes sense to to have a go at it right and worst case you get some experience out of it right mm -hmm. and uh, the upside is uh, limitless right Super. So uh, on that note, Paula, thanks very much for, of course, your time, but also for explaining a bit about Kimi and the opportunity that you saw uh, at your previous job and also seized with your brother and the third co-founder. Really organic process, how it began, especially because it began with your current employer and then now as a client, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> That's great. I'll be certainly looking forward to seeing the expansion, not only here in Peru, but in Mexico and in Latin America, and perhaps even the U.S., right? That'll be interesting Hopefully, to see. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> so thanks again, and until next time, take care. Thank you very much. Paolo offered some great advice at the end of our interview. Go back and re-listen to it if you've already forgotten. Thank you for sharing your experience with Kimi thus far, Paola. I hope you'll join me next week when we sit down with the co-founder and CEO of a startup that has an amazing university to launch story. Thanks for listening.